while they're clearing the room here. <clears throat> Just another uh, thought that I think is important as we get into the apocalypse of John, the revelation of John. Uh, so many weird things and strange things there and different ideas about it. It's hard to uh, sometimes not get distracted, but really this is a drama about God. It's about his honor, his justice, his sovereignty, and his glory. And as we look through these repeated scenes of all these things being vindicated throughout uh, the book of Revelation, uh, it should be something that causes us to worship, which is why that's kind of our theme about Revelation. What is, what is it telling us about worship? So with that thought in mind, let's take a look at where we are in the bigger picture of things here, all the judgments. <clears throat> We're in the second interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet judgments. The uh, All these interludes fall in the same place, as Marty kind of stressed for us last week. The they take us to a different scene, usually a different perspective on what's going on. And that's kind of what we're doing here. We ended up chapter 9 after the sixth trumpet with humanity still refusing to give up their idols, refusing to repent. And so we get a little bit of a change in the scenery here, a change of approach before we, we get into the seventh trumpet. And let me just read the passage here. We're going to go through these things in the next two weeks, which will take us from beginning of 10 through the middle of chapter 11. This is the second, all the second interlude. We'll do the first four this morning, the identifying the angel that we're going to see in this vision, uh, an oath about time. Uh, we're learn about eating scrolls. And uh, John's recommissioning. Those are the things we'll be talking about this morning. Uh, at the bottom of the screen here are some of the uh, intertexts. That's a, just a fancy term for those texts from the Old Testament that are, are alluded to or quoted in the New Testament. And particularly in the, uh, Revelation is full of these things, so you can't really ever include them all. I think someone came up with a number like 450 of them or something like that within Revelation. But we got some big ones that are important, and these are some of the, some of the big ones. So, the first part we're going to take, identifying the angel. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was, able, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. So now that we all understand that one, uh, <laughs> this is a, there are lots of visions of angels in Revelation, doing various things, other creatures too. You know, we got these, the... the, the uh, multi-headed kind of things around the throne, the four living beings around the throne and all kinds of other characters that we see here. The, this, this angel has some unique characteristics. 
First of all, we see that he's clothed or wrapped in a cloud. We see that his legs are like pillars of fire. There's a rainbow over his head. His face was bright light, having a sun-like brilliance. And his feet were pictured as straddling the expanse of creation, the sea and the earth. And so this is a little different than pictures we've seen up to this point. Who was or what is this mighty angel, as it's, as it's called here? Uh, the consensus pretty much really of most of the commentators and people that talk a lot about Revelation and things that uh, are in the more academic world of this pretty well agree that this is a vision of Jesus Christ. Uh, some of the reasons for that are what we're going to spend the first part of our time looking at. Why would we consider that a vision of Jesus Christ as opposed to some of the other angels in Revelation? To kind of begin looking at that, I want to look at one of the Old Testament references for this. I won't necessarily read this, but uh, I've got some things highlighted here. And I'm hoping as we look at these, you can see some of the similarities between this vision that Ezekiel had and the vision that John is having. The one we have recorded here. So we have this human appearance. Well, certainly this mighty angel has got a human-like appearance. He's got a face and hand and and legs and and feet that stand. Uh, All those things seem sort of human-like. Downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, appearance of fire. That sounds a little like legs that are pillars of fire similar thing there. Uh, there is a brightness around him like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Well, that sounds a little bit like a rainbow, a cloud, a bright shining face. But I think the most important thing that we want to note about this vision that gives us a background for John's vision is that for Ezekiel, the appearance of this likeness was a likeness of the glory of the Lord. Well, that tells us something about what these images should convey to us. And so I want to take us on a little tour <clears throat> through the Old Testament and some of the New Testament and talk about some of those images that give us hints or tell us things that these are things that are associated with deity associated with the divine. <clears throat> in the Old Testament, uh, we'll be coming back to Exodus several times here, but I'm, and I'm not going to put these on the screen. I'm just going to, uh, I'll cite them for you if you want to try to write them down, but uh, I'm just going to read them. In Exodus 19, when God is dealing with Moses, he says to him, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud. That's how he came to Moses to begin with. In Exodus 33, after Moses experiencing God and taking things back to the people of Israel. And he had this tent set up kind of outside the camp, if you remember the story. And uh, it says that when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. So this idea of a cloud is pretty important. Isaiah 19, verse 1 uh, oracle concerning Egypt says, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift 
cloud and comes to Egypt and the idols of Egypt tremble, tremble in, his, in his presence. And in Nahum, chapter 1, verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Now we've got some things in the New Testament that are important as well. Uh, when Jesus was arrested and he's standing before the Jewish authorities, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming in the clouds of heaven. And we know when Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 1 that he was lifted up into a cloud. And as the... Uh, his Galilean disciples stand there kind of gawking at the sky like we probably would have done as well. Uh, a couple of angelic characters appear to them and say, why do you look for him? He's gone, but he'll come back the same way in a cloud. So the cloud's important in this identification. The idea of pillars of fire. The word pillar that's translated here, you know, uh, is not, you don't see it much in the New Testament. But you see it quite a bit in the Old Testament, uh, particularly the Greek Old Testament, uh, which would be the same word. And I already mentioned Exodus 33.9, and of course the picture I think most of us are aware of from the, the uh, Exodus uh, journey, that God was leading the people by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. So the idea of pillars. A rainbow. We've seen rainbows already. In Revelation, in chapter 4, there is a rainbow around the throne and the one sitting on it. How about face like a sun? Face like the sun. Um, we see this in Revelation 2, back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 13. In the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. That sounds kind of familiar as well. His face was like the sun shining full strength. In verse chapter 10, verse 1 that we're looking at here, the Greek text is translated by the phrase, his face like the sun. They don't bother with verbs in Greek if they're implied. Uh, so you got these words, his face like the sun. And it's exactly the same phrase that's used by Matthew in his description of the transfiguration. In Matthew 17, it says, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And Jesus was transfigured before them in his face like the sun. Literally what it says there. His clothes became white as light. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So here's this brightness of a cloud. Also, these same kind of visions, same kind of pictures. The account of the transfiguration also describes Jesus talking to two Old Testament characters, Elijah and Moses. And actually, we'll see them. They'll play in chapter 11. They kind of come into that. In Revelation... There are three visions that have this phrase, mighty angel. 
One of them is the one we've been looking at here in chapter 10. When we get to chapter 18, we're going to see that a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And back in chapter 5, we have the vision of the throne continuing from 4 and 5. And in verse 1, chapter 5, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And when no one answers, John says, if you remember that incident, begins to kind of weep, and, and he's told by one, of these, by one of the elders, don't do that because the tribe of the, the line of the tribe of Judah can open this scroll. And then John turns around, and what's he see? A lamb as if slain. I think there's a pretty good case for the fact that all three of these angels, the mighty angel, are, again, visions of Jesus Christ. And so when you get to chapter 5, what you have is an interesting picture there about these scrolls, because, first of all, the mighty angel asks the question, who's worthy to open the scroll? And then we find out, well, it's a lion of the tribe of Judah. And then we see a slain lamb. And, you know, it's one of those pictures of judgment. And you think, well, yeah, a mighty angel, I can see that. Judgment, all about that, being carried by a mighty angel. Or even the lion of the tribe of Judah. Sounds like it could be a good judger. But who did the judging? A slaughtered lamb. And it sort of puts an emphasis then on that picture we have of the lamb throughout the book of Revelation because it was the lamb that was worthy to break the seals of the judgments. Thunder is another regular component of uh, descriptions of, um, we talk about seven thunders of God in Exodus again verse 20 uh, chapter 20 verse 18 now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound and the trumpet and the mountain smoking the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses you speak to us and we will listen but do not let God speak to us or we'll die could be a good attitude we could all have actually the Isaiah in, in a woe against rebellious Jerusalem prophesied in, in Isaiah 29 5 in an instant suddenly you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise and whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. Those are all images we've seen already in Revelation and we will see again. In the New Testament, thunder is used 12 times. The word thunder. One of them is as a nickname for John. He and James were called the sons of thunder. Uh, Eleven of them, the other eleven, ten are in Revelation. And they all speak of a context of God's voice or God's presence and God's judgment. There's one that is not in Revelation, and guess where it is? In the Gospel of John. In chapter 12, verse 27 
Jesus is finishing his ministry, his public ministry. He says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice that has come for your sake, has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So what are the seven thunders? The definite article in the Greek text would indicate that at least John maybe knew, or his readers knew. Um, John clearly understood the words. He was going to write them down before they were sealed up. The most common speculation about this is that the seven thunders were another set of seven judgments, like the seals and the trumpets and the bulls. But when the people, humanity refused to repent and give up their idols at the end of chapter 9, maybe God just decided one more set of these things isn't going to make any difference. Human nature has got too much of a rebellious aspect to it. We'll never know for sure what the seven thunders are. But I do think there's a lesson we can learn from them. We will not always know everything about God's purpose. I know it's a disappointment to everybody. We're not going to get the detailed account of these things. He's God and we're not. And that's really one of the things we need to remember as we go through Revelation for sure. Okay, let's move on to the next section here. Oh, I've mentioned these. I meant to put them up there, sorry. Face like the sun, his face like the sun. Okay, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth is what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Just like the one before this, we've got some Old Testament texts that kind of lead us into this one too. They come from Daniel. Daniel chapters 10 through 12 are all one big vision. And I put the first part of it up here because it's important we see this man clothed in linen in Daniel's, Daniel's vision whose face is like the appearance of lightning and legs like gleam burnished bronze. You begin to see a pattern for some of these things about face and legs. Anyway, the real part of this that's important to us is in Daniel 12. And I heard the man clothed in linen he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. We'll talk about 
that a little more next time as well, next week in chapter 11. The mighty angel, who've identified as Jesus in, in his glory, um, swears an oath that he who lives forever and ever by him. So what's going on with this? Um, is the who, who is he that he's swearing by somebody else? What's the relationship between this mighty angel and Jesus and, and, the, and, and, and God? And, you know, fortunately, again, this is why John's such an appropriate person to have written this revelation, is we've got his theology that we can go back to as well. In John chapter 1, the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then eventually in that chapter we see the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John would have completely agreed with Paul as he wrote in Colossians chapter 1. For by him all things were created, this is of Jesus, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For in him the, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by his blood through his cross. So, is God swearing by God? Yes. That's exactly what's happening here, and we got all kinds of precedent for this. In Deuteronomy, see now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. This is God speaking through Moses. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. And in Hebrews, it's even clearer. Hebrews chapter 6, the writer says that for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater one by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. We should not be at all surprised going through Revelation, that one of the major themes or major things that we should be able to get out of this has to do with the divine nature of Jesus Christ. It's more than just that Alpha and Omega statement at the beginning and the end, first chapter and last chapter. It's all kinds of things in between, and we should be looking for those as we go through. So, what about this oath? What's in this oath? There's a couple things that are important. I think I, let me see if I got it here. Deuteronomy, Revelation, okay. Maybe I got a slide mixed up here. Nope. This is it. I just didn't pay attention, sorry. Okay, the oath. Uh, in Daniel's vision, a man clothed spoke about the times Time, times, and half a time, uh, which is specifically used in chapter 12 of Revelation. We'll see. It's also, we'll see it next week in equivalent terms in chapter 11. What's important about the text, I think, here is that John hears this vision. The phrase is translated, there will be no more delay, is literally, time will be no more. 
Now, does that mean that temporal reality as we know it is going to come to an end? No, it doesn't mean that. Um, it means that the redemptive history that God has started in action is going to come to an end. And that really makes a lot of sense with what we see then, with the mystery of God would be fulfilled. The culmination of everything that God started way back in the Old Testament and is brought forward to redeem this humanity that insists on being so rebellious against him. But before that history of redemption comes to the fulfillment, John's vision will suggest that the establishment of God's kingdom is brought about through the church, who we see twice in Revelation are referred to as his priests and kings, members you know, of, the, of the kingdom, uh, priests, and, and they're going to be here, reign on earth. And the mystery was announced to the servants, his prophets, the mystery is this. We're the mystery. And what's going to happen with the redeemed is the mystery. So, completely consistent with apocalyptic literature, the next section, we're going to learn about eating scrolls. So if you've got a scroll to eat, I don't know if it's like frogs or not, you ever heard that, you know, about if you have to eat a frog, frogs, eat the biggest one first. Anyway, <laughs> then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was bitter. <clears throat> John only had to eat a little scroll. So um, he, he maybe had it a little bit easier than the Old Testament text background for this, which is in Ezekiel again, where Ezekiel was told to eat a scroll, but that was a scroll of a book. <laughs> so it might have been the big frog. It might have been the big school. <laughs> anyway, uh, Ezekiel had a tougher time here. Uh, but we see the same picture that we have here in John, that the, you're going to eat this scroll, and he's going to go to speak to the house of Israel. Um, and he ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey. Well, he didn't get the bitter part. Uh, so even though it was bigger, it seemed to digested better. I don't know what's going on there. But sweetness and bitterness of the scroll that John experienced reveals something about the important message that he's going to be taking or bringing or conveying as that was his prophecy. Uh, it would include sweetness. That's got to be the sweetness of the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. But mostly, it was going to be a message about judgment. And those who refuse to give up their idols and turn to the one who will bring about the consummation of history and the redemption of mankind. When we get to chapter 14, we're going to find out that this uh, scroll eating even has a wine that you can pair with it. 
called the wine of God's wrath. I don't think I want to try that vintage, personally. So John is recommissioned to this somewhat bitter task. He got an initial commission in chapter, early in the, at the beginning of the book of Revelation, but this is a recommissioning to a particular task. And we see it summarized in the first, you know, last verse of this section, that I was told you must again prophesy about many people and nations, nations and languages and kings. This uh, repetition that we see here that I've, I've highlighted is the, um, throughout Revelation, there's phrases that get repeated. The dwellers on the earth. We've seen, you'll see that several times. We'll see it twice in the next, next chapter. Um, how many, guess how many times it's been repeated? It's going to be repeated. Seven. Uh, forever and ever, which is a translation of a Greek phrase that doesn't make any sense if you translate it literally, uh, to us anyway. You see it repeated in Revelation 12 times. Funny how these numbers keep coming up. Well, this is another thing you see seven times is this list of the groups in humanity, for lack of a better way to put it. And we have seven of them. I got all of them up here so you can see them. We'll actually look at the dwellers of the earth next, next week. Um, the first two are pictures of the redeemed. We've already seen those. You know, there are people from uh, different languages and nations and and tribes and and is you know repeated these four sets of fourfold descriptions. In this one, we see another one of these, and then the next we see the other ones are going to be getting to eventually. But the key to this is after or beginning with this one after the first two. They're all negative. They're all talking about the people on the earth who are in rebellion against God. This one's unique also, the one in this chapter, because it's got the word kings in it. You don't see that anywhere else. Um, The last one's unique, too, with multitudes, but we'll get to that one eventually. There are a couple of interesting points that I want to, from the Greek text of this verse, that I want to leave you with. I promise not to get too much into the weed to this kind of thing. But um, this, when it says that I was told, and I was told, that's what most of the translations have. Literally, that is, and they say to me. It's plural. And I don't think we're talking about any kind of a identity crisis or a transgender thing or something like this going on here. It's talking about two voices. We've seen two voices in this chapter. The first one was a voice from heaven. We saw that in verse 4. Voice from heaven says, seal up what the seven thunders say. And we see that same voice in verse 8. Go and take the scroll from the hand of the angel, of the mighty angel. In the New Testament, consistently, when you see a voice from heaven phrase, 
is the voice of God. In fact, we saw that in chapter John chapter 12 when I was reading that section, talked about the voice of heaven. Interestingly, in describing the transfiguration, Peter, who was the, uh, one of the three that went in on that, says that we ourselves heard the very voice from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. This is the voice of God. The other source of the instruction in chapter 10 of Revelation was the mighty angel, who once John took that scroll, he says, eat it and tells him what's going to happen. The implication is <clears throat> that there's a plurality of heavenly beings in this last verse commissioning John to what he was about to do. The voice of God the Father, the voice of heaven, and the voice of God the Son, the mighty angel. The other point from the Greek text I want to mention is the text that usually has the word translated about can be translated against. Yeah. And it usually is in the Greek Old Testament version of, e of Ezekiel, which is an important text for this. So you could render this thing, and they say to me, you must again prophesy against many peoples and nations and languages and kings. As we move through Revelation, we're going to find out that kings, representing the powerful on the earth, will ally themselves with evil. They don't, allow, they don't join up with the good side. Much like the house of Israel did when Ezekiel prophesied after he was given a scroll to eat, <coughs> which is up here, Ezekiel 3.7, but the house of Israel, God tells Ezekiel, will not listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. <coughs> Excuse me. If you remember from chapter 7, the previous interlude, it talked about people with being sealed on their forehead. And I made the comment then that forehead in this culture, in the, in the Jewish culture particularly, was the center of perspective or worldview. It's how you see the things around you. And to have a hard forehead was to adopt a worldview of the culture around you, not the biblical worldview or the worldview that God would have you take on. It's the same thing, except in the head, as a stubborn heart. They're both parts of the same problem. John's commissioned, after the pattern of Ezekiel then, to the task of prophesying woe to an unrepentant world. And this interlude continues then in chapter 11, which we'll be text next week. How does he prophesy? How does this prophecy look? What's going to be in it? And that's what the visions in the next, next section are going to have. That's kind of a, a thought to leave us with. All of this really goes back to the end of chapter 9 with those people who refuse to give up their idols, refuse to repent before God. 
And I can't help but read those things and think of uh, John Calvin, who famously wrote, the human mind is a perpetual forge of idols. If you think you get rid of one, it's still manufacturing more. And I think that's really one of the things that we're going to see in here is that all this is about taking our attention off of God and putting him on anything else. Our focus needs to be on him. And, you know, we don't do that naturally. That just doesn't come to us automatically. Given our own ways, given not thinking about it, I like to think of it as uh, the time I spent in information technology and programming, a good program is going to have defaults built into it, where if nothing else happens in terms of the input, it defaults to something. Our default is to be idle manufacturers. Our default is to be unrepentant. And if we want to be something else, we're going to have to do it intentionally. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, all that you've given us in our redemption, in our salvation. And I pray that you'll help us to remember just who we are and what we are and how much we owe to you. Let these things that we think about here, as strange as they seem, bring us to the point of worship, putting you where you belong in our lives.